Acts chapter 9, the first nine verses. This is for a sermon I've entitled, The Conversion of Saul, because that's what it is. Here's what it says. Now Saul, still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked for letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that he, if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days and without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. And over the years, there's been many who sought to debunk Christianity. Two men who attempted to do so in the 1700s were uh, George Littleton and Gilbert West. Now, both of them trained as lawyers, like many in their day, were skeptics of Christianity. But rather than just brush it off, they wanted to try to debunk it. And so as they talked together in their shared skepticism, they decided that the whole of the Christian religion was really built on two main pillars. The claim that Jesus rose from the dead and the supposed conversion of Saul of Tarsus by an encounter with the resurrected Christ. He said, show that these two purported events never took place as reported in the Bible and the Christian faith would come crashing down to the ground. So they each decided to write a book to that end. Littleton would write on the alleged resurrection of Jesus and West on the supposed conversion of the Apostle Paul. Well, after a number of months, the two came back together to discuss the progress of their respective books. And at a meeting, one of the authors said to the other, he said, you know, I, I've got a confession to make here. I've been looking into the evidence for this story, and I'm beginning to think there may be something to it after all. The other said, well, the same thing's happened to me, but let's keep investigating and see where we come out. Well, eventually, they both did each write a book, but uh, in them, they revealed that the conclusions they came to were just the opposite of what they expected. In Gilbert West's book, The Resurrection of Jesus, he argued the best explanation is that Jesus did indeed come out of that tomb on Sunday morning. And in Littleton's book, The Conversion of St. Paul, he states that there's really no better way to account for the dramatic conversion of that man than the one that the apostle gives himself, that on the road to Damascus, he encountered the risen Christ. Now, by the way, both of them became Christians as a result of this. Now, it's certainly true, though, that the sudden transformation of Saul of Tarsus from the greatest enemy of the Christian faith to the greatest champion of that faith is one that has great apologetic value. But even more so, his conversion is a stunning and wonderful example of God's saving grace. Well, today, we want to marvel at and glory in that saving grace that was extended to this, the chief of sinners, and we want to do so by studying his conversion Account. So why don't we pray and get into the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy as we look at this, that you would work in our hearts and for each one here who doesn't know you, that today would be the day of their conversion and they would understand the gospel. Help us to glory in the cross and what Christ did there. For we ask now in his name. Amen. Well, one of the things I like to do, especially on Sunday afternoons when I'm trying to unwind, is go on YouTube and type in the words, Conversions to Christianity. And, and when you do, a number of videos will come up, quite a few as a matter of fact, so where people give their testimonies, people who are Muslims who came to faith in Christ 
You also find Hindus and Buddhists and atheists, and of course my favorite, Jews who come to embrace Jesus as their Messiah. Well, the pathway that God brings each of these people on in their spiritual journey varies from person to person. But I've noticed that as the person gets to the part in their testimony where God actually opened up their heart and mind to see the beauty of Christ and the cross so that they would trust him and know that their sins are forgiven, almost without exception, they begin to cry at that point. And when I think that God, his own son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, his burden, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sins and sings my soul, my Savior, God, to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. Well, every conversion to Christ is an amazing display of God's grace, but it's certainly true that some conversions are more dramatic and stunning than others. And without a doubt, the most shocking and amazing was that of Saul of Tarsus, the man who we know today as the Apostle Paul. Well, what do we see in the text about uh, this conversion story? Well, two things. First of all, the man and his mission, and that's in verses 1 to 2, the man and his mission. And secondly, the Lord and his grace, and that's in 3 to 9. Now, keep in mind, we've already been introduced to Saul of Tarsus by Luke at the end of chapter 7 and in the beginning of chapter 8. When Stephen was stoned to death, we're told that those throwing the rocks laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then, in the first part of chapter 8, we read that Paul was in hearty agreement with those who were putting him to death. According to the Statista website, between 1882 and 1968, some 3,000 to 4,000 Americans were lynched. White people, Mexicans, and above all, blacks. If you Google lynching on an image site, you'll see pictures come up of people who are hanging in the tree dead, black men, with a whole bunch of people surrounding him, smiling as they're looking up at him, like as if he's a prized turkey. Well, Stephen was stoned, and when he was, Paul was smiling, looking at his disfigured, lifeless body. Well, what do we know about this rabbi from Tarsus? Well, a couple things. One, he was dedicated. He was a very dedicated man. I mean, with every religion, you have adherents that are merely nominal. I mean, they go through the motions, but their religion doesn't have any dramatic, life-shaping impact on them. Not so with Saul. For him, his Jewish religion was not part of his life. That was his life. Perhaps in high school, he had a yearbook. Remember, if you look through it, there were people were labeled and voted in for certain things, like class clown, most talkative, shyest. I would guess there was somebody in your high school yearbook that was labeled most likely to succeed. Well, if the Apostle Paul uh, had a yearbook from his rabbinic school, you would have found that almost everybody had voted him most likely to succeed. I mean, look back at his pre-Christian life. He later said in Galatians 1, 13 to 14, he said this, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Saul was a brilliant young man with a sharp mind and a first-rate education. Both before and after his conversion, he lived life full throttle. He was intense, he was driven, and he was dedicated to the cause of Judaism. Second thing, though, we have to say about him is he was determined. He was determined to do away this heretical movement that has arisen called the way. I mean, look at it from Saul's vantage point. I mean, these Christians claim that Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified by the Romans, 
was not only the long-awaited Messiah, but that he was God incarnate, the very Son of God. I mean, that was a shocking and blasphemous claim, which rightfully brought Jesus to his execution. And then afterwards, these Christians claimed that he had risen from the dead. I mean, what, what are they, delusional? And then these disciples went around spreading their pernicious lies to their countrymen, unlearned, untrained Jews, to turn them into idolaters who worshipped this Nazarene, a mere man, a false prophet, as if he were the God of Israel. When Saul entered the houses of the Christians, dragging them out by their hair, he felt righteous indignation, a holy anger. He could have actually quoted the verse in Psalm 139 that David wrote, verses 21 and 22, where David says this, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They've become my enemies. Remember what Jesus told his disciples they would experience in the coming persecution? He said, They will make you outcasts in the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he's actually offering a service to God. John 16, 2. Next thing we have to say about him, though, was he was deceived. I mean, he was deceived by the religious leaders who paid off the guards that were posted at the tomb to say that they fell asleep and that the disciples came and stole the body. He bought that fake news story. But his greatest deception was self-deception that came out of his own self-righteousness, contrasting those who trust in their own righteousness with those who trust in Christ. Paul later wrote this in Philippians 3, 3-6. He said this, For we, we believers, are the true circumcision, those whose hearts have been changed, who worship the Spirit of God, worship in the Spirit of God, glory in Christ, and put no confidence in the flesh, meaning in our own effort. Although I myself might put confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which was found in the law, I was blameless. But later he had come to see that his religious pedigree, his impressive accomplishments, his unrivaled dedication, and his dogged determination were not pluses, they were minuses. Because they kept him from seeing that he was a sinner, desperately in need of grace that only Christ could provide. Now all that serves as a background to understanding what we read in verses 1 to 2. Look what it says. Now Saul, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You ever heard of bounty hunters? Back in the 1800s, if a person committed a murder or some heinous crime, they would just simply flee the state. Many times they'd go out west to avoid arrest. Well, the bounty hunters were private citizens who were hired by the court to track down and bring back fugitives. And uh, they would be paid when the criminal was brought back, dead or alive. Well, a lot of the bounty hunters were really shady characters. I read about one. He had a really nice pair of boots that was made out of the tanned skin of a man that he had shot and skinned. Pat Garrett is probably the most famous of America's bounty hunters. He tracked down and killed Billy the Kid. Well, Saul was heading for Damascus, armed with orders from the high priest to bring back Christians to Jerusalem, dead or alive. Well, there's a lot of evil men who've been around. Think of the time in Germany with the Nazis. The historians say that Reinhard Heydrich was probably the most fearsome member of the Nazi elite. He was the one who headed up the SS death squads that would go in after the German army and uh, round up people 
they considered enemies, Jews and gypsies and partisans. In one ravine just outside of Kiev, Ukraine, they gunned down 33,730 men and women and children. Hitler called Heinrich the man with the iron heart. The Bible would describe him as a man with a heart of stone. Well, Paul was a stone-hearted man who was hoping to bring about a final solution for this emergent Christian movement. He wanted to strangle the infant religion when it was still in the cradle. That brings us to our second point, though, the Lord and his grace. You see, Paul was the immortal enemy of the church. And what do you do when faced with an enemy who wants to exterminate you? Well, with Heydrich, that Nazi leader, as I just mentioned, uh, he was actually gunned down by two Czech partisans as he was driving along in his convertible. Now, Hitler was furious when he heard about him getting shot and killed, thinking how stupid and idiotic he was to drive in a convertible. But they still had a grand funeral for him. And then afterwards, Hitler ordered the roundup and execution of 10,000 Czechs as revenge. So one option is to strike the neck of your mortal enemy. Kill them before they kill you. And certainly God is capable of bringing down enemies of the church in such a dramatic fashion. But there's another way that he can remove the threat. Rather than strike them on the neck, he can change them in their hearts. Rather than destroy them, he can actually save them. And that's just what Jesus did with Saul of Tarsus. Look how Luke says it happened in verse 3. He says, as he was traveling, it happened that as he was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him. There's a movie that was made in the 70s called Close Encounters with the Third Kind. It was about uh, an alien encounter. Now, according to the astronomer Alan Hennick, who coined that phrase, a, a close encounter of the first kind is when you see something in the sky that leaves no evidence. By the way, Congress is having, what, investigations now into UFOs and all that? The second kind of close encounter is where a UFO leaves some kind of physical trace, like burns on the ground or broken branches. The third kind is when you make actual contact with a USFO, or UFO and you find some kind of an alien pilot on board. Well, Saul was about to have a close encounter of the third kind because he was going to meet someone coming from outer space, heaven to be precise. It says, and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What did Saul feel at that moment? It must have been just sheer terror. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now what did he feel? What had to have been absolute dread. Who are you? I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting? Back in 1957, a movie was re released entitled The Bridge Over the River Kwai. In it, it's a story of a British soldiers being held in a Japanese prison camp. The Japanese want to use them as forced labor to build a bridge across the river to extend the Burma Road, which was used for transporting Japanese troops and arms. Well, when they get to the construction site, uh, the Japanese camp co uh, commandant, Colonel Saido, orders all the men to begin working, including the officers. But the commander of the British prisoners, Colonel Nicholson, insists that the officers must be exempted. They will supervise the others, but they will not engage in manual labor themselves. He insists on this because of, he wants to maintain military uh, order among the prisoners. Well, this begins a battle of the wills between Saido and Nicholson, which eventually Nicholson wins. So the building of the bridge was going slowly because of poor designs by the Japanese engineers and sabotage by the British soldiers. But Nicholson is appalled by the poor workmanship of his men, and he orders them to make a proper bridge. 
The pace of the work picks up, and finally a, a fine, sturdy bridge is constructed, which brings enormous sense of pride and accomplishment to Colonel Nicholson. But unknown to Nicholson, the British High Command has sent some commandos to blow up the bridge. During the night, they plant explosives on the newly finished structure. The next day, as everyone's awaiting the arrival of the first train to go over the bridge, Colonel Nicholson sees that there's explosives that have been placed on it. And one of the commandos is ready to detonate the explosives. So he tries to stop him. The commando is unable to push the plunger on the detonator before he's shot by a Japanese guard. Now, upon reaching the body of the slain commander, Colonel Nicholson realizes it was one of his own men who had escaped from the camp weeks earlier. Stunned by this revelation, Colonel Nicholson looks up and he says, what have I done? He himself is then shot. He stumbles forward and falls on the plunger, so the bridge blows up right as the train crosses it. And afterwards, one of the men who stood and witnessed all this just looked and said, madness, madness. When Paul saw that shining figure blinding him from the sky, and he asked, who are you, Lord? And the response came back, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. His first thought must have been, what have I done? All this time, Saul of Tarsus thought he was doing the will of God by trying to stamp out Christianity, and yet he was actually working for God's enemy, Satan. It's madness. Madness. Now notice that by persecuting Christ's followers, Jesus said, persecuting him. Jesus knows the pain of his people, and he takes the attack on his children as a personal attack on him. And when Paul asked the question, who are you, Lord? I would guess he probably expected to hear, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The last thing he expected to hear was, I am Jesus, the one you were persecuting. And I would guess that at that very moment, as all that truth flooded into his soul, Saul expected the judgment of God to fall on him, the earth to open up, and for him to plunge headlong into hell itself. And if God did that, every believer at that time would have been right and justified in cheering. They might have gone back and quoted that psalm that I gave earlier. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with an utmost hatred. I, or they have become my enemies. But as I said, when you're faced with enemies, when the Lord is, he can deal with them one of two ways. He can either destroy them in his justice, or he can save them in his mercy. And Jesus decided to do the latter. And so we read in verse 6, But get up, enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing nothing. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days and three nights without sight. Neither did he eat nor drink. Blinded by the light, what, what did Saul think as he sat alone? in that room in Damascus. He didn't eat anything. He didn't drink anything. He just thought and thought. He thought about the fact that he'd been so mistaken, so deceived, so on the wrong side of history and what God was doing through Jesus Christ. I mean, if he had been thinking back to his yearbook and that caption over his picture that read, most likely to succeed, he was probably thinking now, in the whole history of the world, there's never been a greater spiritual failure than me. And keep in mind that Saul, at this point, doesn't know what Jesus has decided to do with him. All he can do is sit 
Think about his sins. Think about his failures. But Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In other words, blessed are those who know that they're spiritually bankrupt when they're standing before a holy God. And at this point, all Saul could do is pray like the publican, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Oh, such crimes against the deity? How can the charges be dismissed? What blasphemy against the Son of God? How can such an insult be overlooked? For Saul, it could be and would be because the risen Christ who confronted him was the Lamb of God who had already died on the cross and was punished for Saul's sins. All of them, including blasphemy and persecution of Christians. Now, Saul's sins, they were many, but his mercy was more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Remember what Jesus said? Those who are forgiven much, love much. The Apostle Paul loved Jesus so much because he knew how much he had been forgiven. Let alone, let, let, let's let him give us his testimony. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect life, our perfect patience and an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, from this story, I want to close up and apply it in three ways. First of all, I want to make a theological point. You know, one of the disagreements there are between Calvinists and Arminians uh, in the, their understanding of how salvation is accomplished is uh, the I in the TULIP acronym. Uh, acronym. The, two, uh, the, the I stands for irresistible grace. Now, in one sense, it's obvious that people can resist God's grace. They do it all the time. You remember that Stephen, when he was addressing the countrymen of his who eventually stoned him, said this, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just what your fathers did. Now, that was not only true of unbelieving Jews in his day, but it's true of unbelieving Jews in our day and unbelieving Gentiles as well. Many people, most people, resist the grace of God all their life. But the idea, the teaching, the Reformed teaching of irresistible grace is the idea that once God is determined to save a person, there's nothing and no one who can stop him from doing so. His grace is irresistible to those who are awakened in their sin, just as the offer of a life preserver is irresistible to a man who's drowning. At that very moment, a person is saved it's not that God violates their will. Rather, he changes their will by taking out a heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. He causes them to be born again by his spirit so that they're called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The light of truth shines every time God's word is preached. But sadly, not all see the light. So it's to come to the light. Paul explained why in 2 Corinthians 
4, 3 to 6, when he says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. For a God who said, let light shine in the darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Sometimes people will object to the doctrine of election, saying, look, if God is the one who determines who's saved, why pray if he's already determined it? But think about it. If God is not the one who determines who's saved, why are you praying? What are you asking him to do when you pray for your unsaved family members and friends? You're asking him to open their eyes, change their heart, cause the light of life to shine into their souls. But in your prayer, aren't you assuming that God has the ability to do just that? Otherwise, you wouldn't be asking him. Aren't you asking him to use his irresistible grace to overcome the person's stubborn will and hardened heart? And of course, the fact that God can overcome a heat-filled heart like Saul of Tarsus should be an encouragement to all of us when we think about our lost relatives and friends. I mean, if God can save a person like Saul and a person like you and a person like me, then he can save your mom, your dad, your wayward child, God can save anyone, anytime, anywhere, because he's God. The next thing I want to say, though, this passage gives us a reason for praise. Because if you're a Christian today, that saving grace that was extended to Paul has already been extended to you. If you're a believer, just like Saul, you knew that you were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending your life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of our deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs to the eternal life. Well, that grace that saved Saul, that grace that saved you if you're a Christian, the grace that saved me, That's the same grace we have to count on and come back to time and time again. Because even after we're saved, we still sin and fall short of the glory of God. We have to count on God's grace, we have to bank on God's grace, and we have to look to God's grace every day. Last thing I want to say, though, is I want to extend an invitation to all. As a minister of the gospel and a spokesman for the king, I am extending a royal invitation to anyone hearing my voice today, whether in this room, listening over the radio, or through the internet, anywhere in the world. If you are not a believer, in the name of King Jesus, I am offering you a full and free pardon for all your sins. What you need to do is call off the rebellion. Acknowledge your guilt before your judge. Throw yourself on the mercy of this heavenly court and ask God to forgive you on the basis of Christ's death on the cross. And if you do, and when you do, he will credit Christ's righteousness to your account so that you can stand before him justified. And I have to tell you, it amazes me how many people, including some here, who know they're not saved, know they're heading for hell, and know they need to call out to God to be saved, and yet, you never do. Why not? I want you to think about it for a second. I'm speaking specifically to those of you who know you're not a Christian. 
How much joy has your sin brought you up until this point in your life? Has it brought you more joy or more trouble? Has your rebellion against God affected your relationships to others? When you lay your head down at night, do you have peace? When you look up at the stars in the sky, do you say to yourself, I know the one who made them? Some of you have been in Bible studies. You're so well trained that you could lead other people to Christ. But you've never come yourself. You've never come. Why not? You know God's threats he's going to carry through on. You know his promises he will fulfill. And yet for some reason, you're thinking to yourself, nah, I'll do it later. Like, you know, <laughs> kind of like when I was shopping for Suzanne at Christmas one time. The 24th, Christmas Eve. They're closing all the stores in the mall. Right as they're putting down the metal gate, I slipped underneath. I said to the lady, it'll be just one minute, I promise. That's not even a smart way to shop. But it's even a dumber way to deal with the holy God. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his, heart, uh, hear his voice, don't harden your heart. The scripture says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call on him today. And don't stop calling on him until you have a life-changing encounter with the risen Christ, like the Apostle Paul. Today is the day of salvation. Today. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we need to remember who we're dealing with. Our creator, our judge. But the good news is our savior if we would trust in your son. Father, there's not a person in this room who has not heard the gospel many times. Most here could explain it to others. Defend it against critics. But how many even here, Lord, have not yet surrendered their heart to you and found eternal life? Father, I pray that not a person hearing this message today will perish, that you'll shine the light into their hearts and cause them to see the beauty of Christ as the only answer to all of their life's problems. We pray, Lord, that you'd work through your word, which you promise will never come back void without accomplishing what you intend. So bless us, and bless us as we give your word out. For we ask in Jesus' name and to his praise.